At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson, and I'm here in the studio with an old friend and colleague, Andrew Walker, who is the senior fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Andrew Walker, welcome to the program. Richard, it's good to be with you, and uh, just reminded back to our old days at the Family Foundation yeah. of Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, you were the Louisville guy. You That's were right. the field rep up there, and I was the West Kentucky guy, and our paths didn't cross a whole lot, but we were both uh, in the trenches, so That's to right. speak, at the same period of, of time there, and, and of course, we're in different roles now. Yep. Here you are at Same the ERLC. Same different roles. You're, yeah. you're at a national stage, though. I mean, you uh, you have done debates and, and uh, panel discussions across the country. You're now an author. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, that. In fact, we had you come up to Kentucky yeah. about two years ago to uh, to talk about uh, the transgender issue. We did a we did a, a series of meetings uh, that really it talked about how to love your LGBT neighbor without losing your convictions. Yeah. And you. At that time, you came out with a book on um, God and the transgender debate. That's right. Tell us about that briefly. How, how's that going? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I've that book's been out since August of 2017, and honestly, uh, I think I didn't set out in my career to focus on the issue of transgenderism. Uh, that's an issue that flows downstream from my concerns about biblical worldview and biblical anthropology, and that's obviously one of the areas that's uh, most under assault in our culture. And so, you know, honestly. I didn't know if that book would just be kind of a one and done, you know, set it aside type thing, but I've actually, you know, it's become something I'm speaking about almost monthly somewhere across the country. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've written that book, uh, the transgender revolution has gone even faster as far as its acceleration. And so uh, churches in the most conservative parts of the country are being bombarded by this issue. And so they're contacting me a lot of times asking me about practical ministry questions. What do you do if you have someone who's a biological male, but wants to live as a female and wants to attend a female Bible study, mm. those types of scenarios. So wow. yeah, it's a, it's a huge issue and it's not, it's not getting any slower. It's just picking up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to get my mind around that because you think of transgender issues being outside of the church, but here you just gave an example of it being in the church. And I guess we can expect that what's happening in the culture will eventually meet us in the pews and that's what you're seeing. Yeah. And, hey, I appreciate you helping the church to think biblically about this issue, very difficult issue, and then how so, uh, also how to respond in a biblical way. The issue of transgenderism, which, by the way, we're going to talk about the Equality Act in just a few minutes uh, that is addressed in the Equality Act. But this is one of the toughest issues to address because it's not just a theoretical thing. It's not a policy or just a bill, but it's personified in a real person who's suffering from what used to be known as gender dysphoria. I'm not even sure if gender dysphoria is a, is an actual category anymore. Well, it used to be called gender identity disorder, and now it's categorized more as gender dysphoria. Um, and so, yeah, you, you've seen a shift around the language of the, the use of words in this to move from disorder language to a less stigmatized concept of just gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria simply is the distress or distress that someone experiences from experiencing some type of gender identity conflict. 
um, that used to be considered a pathology or something problematic. But again, we've destigmatized the language, and now it's just kind of a phenomenon and an occurrence that someone might encounter. And it's up to them to decide how they want to live, whether yeah. with their biological sex or their felt sense of gender identity. Up until 2013, the American Psychiatry Association uh, classified uh, this as a treatable condition. If you were identifying with the other sex, uh, it was treatable. It was not considered uh, healthy, uh, but that was they declassified it in 2013. My understanding is that there was no scientific evidence, no real scientific reason to do that. It was more political pressure. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So... So, Andrew, we're going to talk about uh, the Equality Act, if I could pivot into that sure. topic. And uh, you wrote a very provocative column uh, recently uh, where you, the title was The Equality Act Accelerates Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, this is what you say in this column written in, uh, in, back in March. You said this, When the Equality Act was first introduced, the bill represented the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America. Given that it touches areas of education, public accommodation, employment, and federal funding, were it to pass, its sweeping effects on religious liberty, free speech, and freedom of conscience would be both historic and also chilling. Uh, bold statement, Andrew. And for those of listeners who aren't familiar with the Equality Act, I guess we should start with that. What, uh, what does the Equality Act do? So the Equality Act is a piece of legislation proposed um, by progressives and Democrats uh, that really uh, does a, a lot of little things, but mm-hmm. accumulatively uh, one major thing. Um, and that basically takes the worldview of the sexual revolution uh, it takes the worldview of the sexual revolution and codifies that in federal law. So what do I mean practically by that? Yeah, I mean yeah. that uh, we have all these categories in federal law that are protected classes. And so you can't be discriminated against on the basis of these particular classes, age, race, sex, mm-hmm. ethnicity, age, gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Equality Act adds two new categories, mm-hmm. the, issue, the category of sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, and so it, it, it inputs those two categories just about every place in federal law. So any place where federal law uh, conflicts or uh, hits on the area of gender identity and uh, sexual orientation, if you disagree with where federal law is going on a particular issue, um, it's no longer that this is an issue that we can debate uh, it's no longer an issue that the government is neutral towards. It's that the government says that you're on the wrong side of this. So mm. practically, what does this mean? Um, this simply ignites the types of cases that most of us are familiar with, with individuals like Jack Phillips, the baker, Baron L. Stutzman, the florist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it basically uh, is a catalyst for conflict. Uh, that if you, for example, are a baker and you are a Christian like Jack Phillips and you don't want to make a cake with a message that you disagree with, well, because sexual orientation is a protected class in federal law, if the Equality Act were to pass, all of a sudden you are seen as engaging in active discrimination. And then audaciously, what the Equality Act actually does, and it specifically says this, is that you cannot refer back to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a way to basically make an appeal to the government. So let's say you're the baker. And you're, you're being accused of being discriminatory. And you want to say, well, I have the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to appeal to. 
the Equality Act says no. You can't even appeal to that. You're engaging in a form of invidious discrimination. So wow, the impact wow. of the Equality Act, I mean, think of all the areas in public in the public mind, in the public square, where issues of employment, public accommodation, hiring, and federal funding impact us. Uh, so just take take Christian colleges, for example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's say you have a Christian college that has a student conduct code that says sexuality ought to be reserved for marriage between mm-hmm. a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, if you pass that, if you have that in your student handbook uh, and the Equality Act becomes law, the Equality Act says now you're guilty of discrimination against LGBT persons because you're limiting them or prohibiting them mm-hmm. um, from joining your school because they they don't want to live by that particular policy. And so therefore, you could be liable for uh, discrimination accusations and having your federal funding cut off. So you're talking about a private Christian school that has certain standards right. of conduct that they expect their students and their staff probably to right. abide by uh, being overruled or overridden by this Equality Act at the federal level. But if I can just add one other thing, uh, yeah. you know, the Equality Act brings this issue of gender identity into every corner of American life as well. Hold that thought, okay, sure. because we're going to take a quick break. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're with uh, Andrew Walker of the ERLC. I'm Richard Nelson, and you're listening to The Commonwealth Matters. Welcome back to The Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson, here with Andrew Walker, and we're talking about the Equality Act. And Andrew, just before the break, we were talking about how the Equality Act, a bill proposed at the federal level, essentially elevates sexual orientation and gender identity to civil rights status throughout the federal code. And one thing that I was not aware of that you just mentioned was that this act, if it's if it makes it into law, would overrule the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which made me think, and that's that law was put in place to protect people's religious freedom and their freedom of conscience from any other law that would override that. But it made me think of as well the First Amendment of the Constitution, mm-hmm. which protects religious freedom. Uh, would it, are we looking at a standoff between these two categories, religious freedom and conscience on one hand, in sexual identity on the other? Yeah, I mean, we've been on a uh, path and collision course for um, a few decades, and this would be, to me, uh, you know, the, the collision happening head on. Uh, as I mentioned, it would completely remove, the, the Equality Act removes someone from being able to appeal to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It says, no, you're committing an act of discrimination, you have nothing, you have no recourse. You're just simply wrong. Wow. Um, which is really, I mean, that's 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 the government being a bully. Can, can I jump in and yeah. just say, use a word? I mean, isn't that intolerance? Isn't it saying you're not allowed, if this law is passed, you are not allowed to have a contrary view or at least be a participant in society, in the right. public arena, if you have that view? Well, this, is, this comes back to what, you know, there's a famous court case um, where, you know, the Supreme Court said that the government essentially should not set up orthodoxies. Uh, and this sets up a new orthodoxy uh, with using the heavy handedness of the government to simply say to the Christian, oh, you disagree with federal law. We're no longer neutral towards you. You no longer have any recourse. You're a bigot and you're wrong. And we're going to yeah. use the heavy hand of the government to correct you, right. uh, w- whether that's through punishment, through fines, 
there's really no telling where this will stop if the Equality Act passes. Andrew, how have we gotten to this point where just a few, maybe a decade or so ago, those in the LGBT community were saying, we want tolerance, we want acceptance, and now they're the ones that are pushing against those that have orthodox views on human sexuality, traditional moral boundaries on human sexuality. And they're imposing their level of intolerance, if I could put it that yeah, way. How I, do we get that? I think such a shift in such a short period of time. Because, because let's be honest, when we have these debates, someone's controlling the language game, right? So for the longest time, the buzzword of the left was tolerance. Well, that was a word that was used when, you know, maybe they weren't in favor or they weren't in, in the ruling party. Yeah. Well, now they're the ruling party. And honestly, do you see yourself hearing liberals talk about tolerance anymore. It's no, no longer no. a useful buzzword, which means that the, the goalposts uh, change and they yeah. evolve, which means there really was no true commitment to a principled account of tolerance. It yeah. was tolerance for me, but not tolerance for thee, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, and that's a very, very good point because we're seeing uh, an intolerance. We're seeing uh, a narrow view, a narrow ideology really imposed on us through this Equality Act. What's well, a that's, fundamentalism? I mean, this yeah. is what Josh Hawley, the new senator from Missouri, was talking about, about uh, Yale Law School preventing students um, over their summer uh, terms from uh, getting summer employment at organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom. Yale Law School said, you can do that, but you're no longer eligible to get summer funding like mm. every other law student. Well, Josh Hawley stands up on the floor of the Senate and calls that out for what it is. He says it's a secular form of fundamentalism. This devotion to, to principle held by an irrational zeal that blinds you from the ideals of liberty, tolerance, and pluralism, which is what our Constitution and our civil society is supposed to promote. And Andrew, this fundamentalism has far-reaching impacts. In the first segment, we were talking about if the Equality Act is uh, becomes law, it will extend to private Christian institutions of higher learning, even, uh, I think, K through 12. Absolutely. We saw uh, uh, Karen Pence uh, highlighted in a, uh, a Washington Post article. She was maligned as uh, being part of a school that teaches the way they, the headline read was uh, uh, an anti-LGBT school, where essentially, though, they had standards of conduct for their students and for their staff where they said that sex should be reserved within marriage and that we expect this to for our students and staff to abide by this. Uh, that's, view, that's increasingly being considered out of the mainstream. Right. That view that was once the majority view is now marginalized and it's outside the mainstream, which is unfortunate in, in a number of ways. But that is a, another example of the intolerance and of the marginalization. Which is, is one of the main arguments of my piece that I wrote at the Gospel Coalition is what what is the biggest problem with the Equality Act is that it, it takes our views uh, of what marriage is and what and how you define male and female and it says that those are morally repugnant views that you can't hold for any good reason and it says that uh, not only are those morally repugnant views they ought to be culturally disfavored views as well what yeah. but, but we would say is um, all, not all uh, culturally disfavored views are morally repugnant. So the Christian yeah. sexual ethic might be culturally disfavored, yeah. but it's not morally repugnant because yeah. it's rational, it's reasonable, it's historic. Yeah. Uh, it's, and so the, the Equality Act fails to make that distinction. It basically yeah. says, oh, it's not only popular, but it's unreasonable, and there's no good reason why anyone should believe what you believe or act on it 
in public. I, I want us to talk about the Christian view of marriage and human sexuality, which I would say has been a cornerstone of Western civilization. And it's the idea that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, that sexual relations should only take place within the covenant of marriage. And it's good for children, it's good for both spouses, and it's good for society. And this yeah. is an unspoken truth, I think. Right. But how is that a negative? How is that idea of man-woman marriage, you know, united in law for life, uh, how, how has that become a bad idea or, a, or a, a, a something of a negative or a, a bigoted, intolerant view? I think the answer to your question is not that um, progressives would say that you and I are altogether wrong for believing um, what we believe about marriage. They would say that we're wrong for not being willing to expand that definition yeah. outward to include people of the same sex. And so this is where really what we want to be having right now is a question based on reason and philosophy, which our soundbite culture doesn't really allow for. Um, because there's, I've been having these debates for 10 years in my entire professional career. Yeah. I, the older I get, the more and more convinced I am of the soundness and the persuasiveness that the Christian view of marriage and of how we define male and female is true, not only because the Bible says it, but it's it's actually the truest because it's the most reasonable. And it actually yeah. has a principled account yeah. that doesn't unravel with a thousand caveats that yeah. just becomes subject to human opinion over over time. So the Christian view, if we could if I could add to this, it's rooted in biology, that there are two uh, parts of, of humanity, the male and female, the two come together to form this marital union. It's the best arrangement for raising children. It's the best arrangement and situation to protect against adulterous type relationships. Or it's the best place for the, children. The best place for ch- safest for children. Right, and it, it's the, it's the easiest way for children to um, be raised to maturity and for them to have success as an adulthood, mm-hmm. as an adult, mm-hmm. um, without the government needing to step in and do that. Yeah. in place of the parents. So if you want a smaller government, if you want lower taxes, if you want citizens who yeah. uh, grow into maturity and become healthy taxpayers themselves, yeah. 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 Uh, you want to promote the circumstances and ecology where that is most likely to be fostered. And social science is clear. Uh, that's, I mean, children need a mom and a dad. Moms and dads are not uh, interchangeable. We are distinct. Um, We all know this intuitively. If you have children, that your children respond to a a father and a mother differently. Uh, That's not simply a product of evolutionary goo. Uh, That's a product of, I believe, divine will working itself out in a biological creation that we can all observe, whether whether Christian or non-Christian. You're just joining us. You're listening to The Commonwealth Matters. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute. At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit commonwealthmatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to The Commonwealth Matters. 
Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, and I'm with Andrew Walker. We are talking about the Equality Act. Uh, This is a bill proposed at the federal level that would essentially add sexual orientation and gender identity to the Civil Rights Code for the purposes of our federal law. Uh, Andrew, uh, I think a lot of people would rather not have to deal with this issue. We're talking about a personal uh, issue of sexuality, um, but it's here, and it's it's an issue that we're forced to talk about. Um, how do people who uh, how do we enter this conversation? You know, it's going to come up around the water cooler at work. It's a big issue. It's getting uh, coverage on the news stations. And uh, how do we enter these conversations, and how do we do it from a biblical worldview? I think, I mean, I could answer this for a long time. I, we need to first off have an answer. The Bible talks about to to give a defense. So this means there's some study involved. I mean, you, you, you can't just simply say it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's, yeah. a, that's a trite, stupid answer that yeah. we shouldn't be using. Yeah. So this requires some, some actual philosophical study that you need to actually read some books um, to think about the reasonableness. A- am I hearing a plug for your book in here? That's by right. The way? Yeah. God <laughs> okay. and the Transgender You're Bait, available on Amazon. There, <laughs> yeah. But we need to be able to read. Um, so you need to be prepared so you actually have an answer. So, But when you have an answer, you need to be able to deliver that in a gracious and gentle and winsome way. Yeah. The Bible commands us. I was reading in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2 today. The Bible commands us to not be quarrelsome, and it commands us to be gentle in our answers with people. Yeah. But to recognize that winsomeness and gentleness are necessary components for us as Christians, yeah, yeah. but they may not be sufficient in the eyes of the culture yeah. to remove us from zones of conflict, which means we can be really nice, we can put a smile on our face, and we still might be called really nice, really gentle bigots yeah. because the, the culture just simply thinks that we're wrong. And what I want to say to people in that instance is we have to be willing to take on a New Testament mindset that we're willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. You read the, the earliest acts of the apostles. What do we read? They, they, they counted it joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Jesus yeah. says in Matthew chapter 5, count it joy. Uh, if, if they came after me, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So this is really no different than what our Lord experienced and what our Lord predicted for us. Andrew, I agree with what you're saying, and that's biblical. Uh, this isn't uh, an admonition to Christians, and yet here's two of us behind the microphones. We're talking about facing persecution and being willing to suffer, but here's Americans in 2019. Uh, we have jobs, and we have bills to pay, and my goodness, this could cost us. Right, and so I just read somewhere on Twitter, someone said that the, the greatest obstacles for Christian faithfulness in the 21st century are going to be issues of money and reputation. Hmm. And I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, You know, I have had conversations with people who work in professional fields, medical doctors, for example, who are unwilling to perform or be a party to sex reassignment surgeries, which you actually can't reassign sex real quick. Just want to make that note. I agree. Uh, And so he feels isolated and marginalized and stigmatized because he's a Christian physician who who dissents from this newfound orthodoxy. So mm. he's going to have limited career options. Uh, I get emails from teachers all the time asking me about, you know, our uh, school policy says to call a kid by their preferred gender yeah. identity or their preferred pronoun. And I feel like I can't do that. And they email me expecting me to have a perfect solution. And you know what? I don't have a perfect solution, which means sadly 
the future of Christians being public school teachers is going to be difficult. I'm not saying we should abandon that, but it's going to be difficult. Andrew, along those lines, there was a uh, teacher in Virginia that was just right, lost this. his job because he did not use the preferred pronoun of a yes. transgender student. Uh, and he lost his job. He, and and so I think this is this is the future. I mean, this is where we have to ask the question of to what extent are we willing to take up our cross and follow Christ? Um, and so these are these are challenging questions that are going to get at the issue of our livelihoods and our reputation. I bet you have lost friends over things you believe and have spoken about publicly. I have family members and friends who don't want to have sometimes a lot to do with me because of what yeah. I believe and think and that I'm willing yeah. to speak up on these issues. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever been anything but gracious, uh, but still— you know, the Bible predicts there are lines that get drawn, and I want to be faithful more than I want to be popular. You're just joining us. I'm with Andrew Walker of the ERLC, and we're talking about the Equality Act, and particularly in how to engage conversation when it comes to LGBT issues. Uh, increasingly, Andrew, uh, we see fewer and fewer people willing to speak to this issue because of the uh, negative impact it could have on their lives. Uh, uh, their comfort, their status in society. But at a certain point, uh, we need to do an assessment of who are we, what do we believe in, what am I willing to stand for, and as these issues encroach uh, in our lives, whether you're the doctor or the school teacher or uh, business person, uh, at some point we will all be making a decision uh, you'd mentioned something uh, a few minutes ago about engaging carefully and with compassion, being gracious, uh, but that may not be enough. Uh, we, we still may be labeled as, as bigoted, maybe a nice bigot, but uh, we'll, we'll still be labeled. If the church does not engage this issue, if, if Bible-believing Christians do not at some point draw that line and say, here's who I am and here's what I believe, and I can't go past that line— what happens to culture if we remain silent, if we don't engage this issue? What can we expect in the next year or a couple of years to come? I mean, I think things will get uh, inevitably more difficult for Christians. Uh, I think they'll find themselves increasingly locked out from certain career fields. Um, but to take it away from us for just a second, the reason that I care about these issues and I'm willing to speak about them are twofold. One— because I want to glorify God and God has revealed these things in scripture and in creation. Um, Number two, I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. So the two greatest commandments. Uh, And so when I look out and see where culture is taking itself, uh, I fear that in the name of tolerance and love and compassion, um, we're breeding intolerance, uh, a lack of compassion and a very, uh, and not a form, a biblical form of love. Yeah. And good. so, you know, take for example what we're doing to kids in the name of gender identity mm. practices. We're mm. we're engaging in politically correct forms of bodily mutilation. We're telling confused kids who need counseling and who need help and our mercy and our compassion that if if you think you're um, a boy but you're actually a biological girl, then you should take puberty blockers. Yeah and cross-sex hormones, and you should have surgery when you turn 18. That's barbaric. Uh, I I don't want to, I do not want to bring people down a path that I think is going to further their harm and further their sense of personal despair. Andrew Walker, thank you so much for joining us on the Commonwealth Matters. God bless you. Thank you, Richard.